You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week, researchers found that the gap in old cause mortality between psychiatric patients after discharge and the general population is growing. We find out reasons why and how we might tackle that inequality. Because what we're seeing is that the, the risk continues all the way up to one year, at least, after, after discharge. But before that... This week sees the UN conference, which aims to tackle non-communicable diseases. David Payne finds out from Rebecca Coombs what that's about and how we're covering it in the BMJ. Previous UN summits have provided the catalyst for change. The summit on HIV and AIDS in 2001 resulted in substantial funding and political commitments. I'm joined by Rebecca Coombs, Features Editor at the BMJ. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, hi. Tell us about the format of the meeting. It's a high-level summit, and it's at the United Nations, and it's only the second health summit in the history of the United Nations. It comes just before a General Assembly at the UN, so there's a lot of world leaders in town anyway. So some world leaders will be attending the summit. Uh, For other nations, such as the UK, it will be health ministers. There have been several pre-meetings. There's been one in New York and one in Moscow, at which uh, an outcomes declaration has been hammered out. And at this meeting, it will be agreed and, and, and signed up to by members of the United Nations. Right. What's the expectation for how easy that will be? I mean, is it, is it, is it a sort of rubber stamping exercise or will there be lots of wrangling and um, you know, discussion and debate? There has been a lot of wrangling already. We've talked to some people that are very cynical about the outcome of this summit. They say that, that it was all decided beforehand and um, without any proper funding commitments, um, it's not going to change much for the outlook of non-communicable diseases. However... Other people will say it's all in the last day. So Monday and Tuesday we're meeting. Tuesday there could be a, a, a rush of activity and we could actually see some, some interesting commitments on the table to which um, member states will sign up to. Right. I gather there have been some concerns that the EU state are sort of lukewarm about some of the proposals. Is that is that a fair assumption? Is that That's a fair right. Assumption? And I think it's about the timing, really. You know, there's... Um, economic crisis uh, throughout the the developed world. So there's a feeling that there's enough problems to fight on the home front without taking on further funding commitments elsewhere, particularly as a lot of money has already been spent overseas on the um, trying to achieve the Millennium Development Goals, trying to improve child and maternal health. Right, and NCDs aren't actually a Millennium Development Goal, are they? No, they're not, they're not. And when we, when we talk about um, non-communicable diseases for the, the purpose of this event, we mean diabetes, cancer, chronic respiratory disease and cardiovascular disease. Um, and, and together they cause more than half of all death in, deaths in low- to middle-income countries. Right, and presumably the focus at this meeting will be on those developing countries. Is, 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 that, is that a fair assumption? It is too? a focus, but I think it's very much also learning from how developed countries have dealt with these diseases and where they've had prior success. And, and WHO have issued these sort of best buys um, for reducing chronic disease worldwide, and it's kind of drawing from the success of countries like the UK in tobacco control, for example. Mm. Um, And so one of the best buys is raising taxes on tobacco um, or raising taxes on alcohol. Right. So so presumably there's been some lobbying by industry for this event as well, has there? Yes, there has. Um, And and there's been a lot of criticism, and we've been covering this in, in in, in the BMJ, about conflicts of interest with industry. Because obviously... The food industry, drink industries are very important economic industries for for developed countries. So there's a conflict of interest there. Um, um, 
David Cameron is not going to want to sign up to anything which might um, disadvantage industry back home. Um, mm. So it's a delicate balancing act. Right, okay. You, I believe, focus on trans fats in the BMJ last week. You talked about that as, a, as, a, as one issue that That's uh, will right. come up there. So tell us about that. In the journal, we've been looking at risk factors, underlying risk factors for all these four diseases. Um, so we've been looking at tobacco, alcohol, um, and also poor diet and physical in- inactivity. And as part of the, fo- the poor diet strand, I was looking at trans fat, which is a, a kind of hidden artificial fat in many processed foods, um, which you can find in, throughout the world. Um, countries such as the United States have had big successes in actually just eliminating trans fats from, from, from restaurants and from the kind of food you buy in, in Walmart and supermarkets. Mm. Uh, Denmark has actually eliminated trans fats completely. Um, so the, the question is, why can't everybody follow their lead? Right, OK. Um, so you can, obviously you can read that feature on bmj.com and in the print journal too. Um, in terms of outputs for us, though, you, you're obviously going there. How, how, will we, how will we cover the event? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll certainly be um, checking into the United Nations and seeing what's going on on the sort of summit floor. So there will be a lot of negotiation going on and, and that will kind of lead up to a big press conference on Tuesday where we'll find out what are the outcomes of this summit. Um, It'd be interesting to see the kind of final wording, whether there are actual solid commitments which are with funding attached that, uh, that, that, that we can be pleased about. But there's a lot of side events. On Sunday, um, a lot of the NGOs are holding lobbying events because they say there's still all to play for mm. in this event and, and they want to keep on raising the profile of the individual diseases. Yes. Um, and there will be the World Bank, the World Economic Forum will also be, be staging side events. Right. Is it too early to say whether this will this meeting will have the impact, say, that the 2001 meeting on HIV and AIDS had in terms of uh, being a catalyst for change and resulting in substantial funding and political commitments? Yeah, I think that I think that there's some pessimism around that, 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 that this health summit can sort of replicate the success of the AIDS one. There are some reasons, there's several reasons for that. There isn't the same sort of moral urgency about... Mm. chronic disease as there was about AIDS there was a, a real sort of fear of contagion back then it's hard to to yes. remember in a way but that that um, made it an issue for developed countries as well as developing countries and there's not the same level of kind of global anxiety about chronic disease yet yes. but positively even if we don't come out of this summit with with funding commitments at least we would have raised the profile of of chronic diseases and I, I think that that Summit is certainly doing that. If you look at the coverage we've had in the BMJ, and I begin to see, we begin to see that in national newspapers, certainly in this country. Okay, well, Rebecca, thanks very much for joining us today. As Rebecca said, there's been lots of coverage um, in advance of this event, which is on bmj.com. We're talking about um, editorials, features, a recent one by Tracy Cormier, who's an editorial about the UN meeting for NCDs, a recent blog by Deborah Cohen, and other ones by Richard Smith as well. So so we look forward to uh, reading what um, you, you've got to, to say about the event when you return, Rebecca. Yes. So thank you very much. Now, Harriet Vickers finds out about post-discharge mortality in psychiatric patients. A number of studies have shown that those with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder have high rates of mortality. However, the trends in this equality are poorly characterised. A paper published on bmj.com this week looked at these trends, tracing all schizophrenic and bipolar patients discharged from English NHS trusts between 1999 and 2006. Co-author Dr Wei Huang, an academic clinical fellow from the Department of Public Health, Oxford University, told me what they found. 
Well, what we found was that those who had schizophrenia and were discharged from hospital in the first uh, in 2006, um, they had double the risk of death within the first year compared to the general population. Um, and those who had bipolar disorder had almost double, that's um, 1.9 times the risk. And what we did find is that those that are discharged in 1999 um, had a much lower risk of mortality uh, than those who were discharged in 2006. Could you give us a little bit more detail about that? I mean, was it particular causes? Yes, approximately three quarters of the um, causes of death were due to natural causes, and especially uh, cardiovascular diseases and respiratory diseases. Um, suicide, although uh, an important cause, it was only a very small minority, and actually most of the excess um, and most of the increase uh, in the mortality risk was accounted for by natural causes. And um, you, you write in the paper that an important policy goal in recent years has been to, to close this mortality gap. Mm. Could you just talk us through what actions have been taken so far to try and achieve this? There, there, there have been a lot of changes in, in care for these groups. I mean, um, we do know that they've been moved towards community care services. There's also been great advances in pharmacotherapy uh, for these conditions. Um, there's been a, a conflict at the moment about what the harmful effects of some of these pharmacotherapies could be. Um, and as I say, the mortality excess, uh, the, the underlying reasons for that, are, we, we suggest, are likely to be complicated and possibly a combination of these factors. So, so what are the implications, do, do you think, of, of your results and having a clearer understanding of this issue? This is definitely a call to action. Um, it's definitely showing that mortality risk is heading in the wrong direction. Um, whilst we do welcome the government's focus on this subject, we feel that they need to come up with specific policies urgently. We would suggest that a good sort of plan of action is something recommended um, by the Royal College of Psychiatrists. And they did stress three very important things that we should be doing. First is that we should be helping people with severe mental illness to make healthy lifestyle choices. Secondly, that we promote much better access uh, to general medical services for those with severe mental illness as well, um, where they would have access to better early detection of physical illness, better treatments and follow-up care as well. It would involve a better integration between mental health services and physical health services, and especially primary care and secondary care, because what we're seeing is that the, the risk continues all the way up to one year, at least, after after discharge. And thirdly, that we need much more funding for research into physical illness. So what about the clinical practicalities of reducing the mortality rates of these patients? With me to discuss this is Dr Fiona Gochran, lead consultant, South London and Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust, and Dr Shibalada Smith, a consultant psychiatrist at South London and Maudsley. They are also both physical health leads at the Institute of Psychiatry. So hello to you both and, and thanks for coming on to discuss this issue. Hi, good afternoon. So although Wee Huang's paper showed that the majority of these deaths were from natural causes, the paper wasn't designed to ask why these patients are more at risk. 
Has there been any other work um, illuminating why they are? Well, there's lots of different reasons. Some of them may be shared risk factors um, that influence your chance of developing mental health problems and physical health problems. For example, we know for over a century that people with schizophrenia are that bit more likely to have diabetes. And then there's how illness influences your lifestyle choices. Reduced motivation can make it more difficult to take regular exercise or to have a healthy diet. Also, smoking rates are much, much higher in people with psychotic illnesses. Substance use also adds to the problems. And then, of course, you have the sort of social inequality factors that are important for anybody's physical health. And our patient groups are more likely to um, suffer from social inequality. Then, of course, some of the medications which we treat people with, which are very necessary and to improve both their physical and their mental health, but they also increase weight and can increase lipids and can, can also increase blood sugar levels. So the big question is what we can do to, to tackle this and, and bring down these mortality rates. Uh, what did you think of um, Dr. Huang's suggestions and how do you see these working out in practice? You know, the first you mentioned was encouraging these patients to make um, healthier lifestyle choices. I think that's an extremely sensible suggestion and you know, people need to be aware of that at, at all levels, not just within the health services but also within community um, services, how those how services are structured and how accessible they are to people with mental health uh, problems, for example, gyms, etc. And then you'd sort of follow that through the system helping in access to primary care. Maybe it's difficult to get early morning appointments, for example, and maybe you need to be able to um, adapt the system so that, if, you know, that, that somebody who takes longer to get up and out in the day, again, same thing with, with um, regular screenings, which we need to be very on the, on the ball about. And then when people do become unwell, how do we respond? Do we make it easy for people to access care? Um, are we able to tailor our systems? And how do we make sure that people are getting... Um, equitable treatments. So there's some evidence that when people do present um, with physical problems that they actually may get less assertive interventions. Yeah, Probably from about the, the earlier part of, of the decade, the government instituted some guidelines and guidance to uh, NHS trusts and, and um, PCTs about what should be done. For example, um, the changes in the GP contract that um, gave GPs incentives and expected GPs to provide uh, physical health care specifically for people with severe mental mental illness. There was also an expectation that um, mental health trusts could actually had a policy around physical illness in people with um, severe mental illness. GPs have certainly improved, primary care certainly improves. Hmm. But this study, it was looking at um, 1999 to 2006 and actually found that the mortality gap was, was widening. Do you, do you think this is just down to, to some trusts implementing and, and some trusts not? I think the changes were only beginning to happen yeah. in the middle of the last decade. And I think by 2006, there would have been only the beginnings of changes within various trusts. The government is on board. Trusts are aware that this is a priority. But it, you know, we're still moving towards how to make this happen consistently. Okay. And, and what about um, better linking mental health services and, and physical health services? Has anything been happening here? Certain, in certain trusts, for example, in our own trust, there's been a, a development of GP link nurses, if you like, uh, community mental health nurses who sat in the GP surgery, or we had a community mental health nurse who would um, uh, liaise on a regular basis with, the, with primary care services so as to um, really kind of 
develop a, a link in such a way that the the GP and the primary care um, practitioners would feel more comfortable about working with our client group. From the physical health point of view, for example, at King's, there's been a recognition that um, they have a very large diabetes department and they've recognized that there are significant, um, significantly worse outcomes in those people with diabetes who become depressed. They, they have put a lot of resources into looking at these issues and so the, there is a recognition that something needs to be done. And I think that it's not, it's not just happening at the primary care level. It's also now happening at the secondary care level. And it takes longer than any of us would like, but it is happening. Great. Do you think that psychiatrists need to take more responsibility for their patients' physical health? The last thing anyone wants is the psychiatrist looking after, on a long term, the, the person's diabetes. And it would not be equivalent at all if the person looking after um, your diabetes is a psychiatrist, whereas everybody else who has diabetes is looked after by a specialist diabetologist. The the job of the um, mental health practitioner is to be the advocate for um, the the client and to ensure that that person gets adequate access to appropriate care in the same way that everyone else does. The job of the primary or secondary care physical health specialist is to ensure that they provide that person with a mental health problem with the same level of physical health care that they would for anybody else. Dr Smith and Dr Gochran, thanks very much for, for coming on and discussing this issue. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's all for this podcast. We'll be back next time with a look at assessing the carers of older people. Plus, Rebecca will be reporting from that UN conference. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.